Here at Doxedo Hatfield, we are a family on mission. Make sure to get connected by joining us at one of our Sunday services. We hope you enjoyed today's message. So, everybody that knows Dr. Hat Dr. Hatfield, you are so welcome. For those of you that are here for the first time, you are welcome as well. We are sort of at the back end of a series called Those Jesus People. Okay, so the reason why we, we call it Those Jesus People is we are traveling, learning, and teaching through the book of Acts. So we are looking at how the first generation church followed Jesus unconditionally. So when we say those Jesus people, it's the first time in Acts where people that followed Christ were called Christians. They were so associated, sold out everything that they did to Christ that they were called Christians. And as we travel through this book, we're taking a, a next step into our journey. Now, in order to describe this next step that we are taking, I need to share a story. So the title of the story is, well, it refers to the day that I met John Legend on the Gau train. So who knows who John Legend is? Yeah? Okay. So who doesn't know who John Legend is? Okay. He's a legend. So he's a, a rhythm and blues singer, an American singer. He's like very popular. Um, he's a voice coach, right? In that voice thingy, majiggy, yeah. So there's somebody that's wasting our time during the week, right? Looking at the voice. So the story goes like this. So I was in Santon on a platform, and it was late at night, and the train was late to take me back to Pretoria. Now there were a lot of people on this train or on this platform, right? And everybody was agitated and. At some point in time, I felt that somebody that was standing to the left of me was like peering over to our direction the whole time. Now, in Santon, you don't know what that, is, that means, right? So it could be Gefar, it could be something, I don't know. And I looked at this guy, and he looked quite, you know, harmless and innocuous, and uh, I looked over to him, and then I realized what was happening. There was a beautiful girl standing right in front of me, and he was like looking at her the whole time. And then I realized that the gray matter in this guy was like motoring because late at night he thought, maybe today I am going to introduce myself to this girl. But how do you do this at like eight o'clock on a train platform? So he had to think. But I realized that he had now gone into action when, remember he's standing to the left, we're standing to the right. I saw him lift up his elbow ever so slightly and just went, And then I realized that this guy had a plan. He had to just see whether he had the sense, but now he also had a plan. So he put his little earphones in his ear. He walked up to us. And then this bugger went and stood between me and this girl, like right in front of me. Not COVID safe, no nothing, like right here. And I heard that he had started a song playing on his phone. And I recognized the song because this guy started humming to the tune of the song. And I thought, this guy, he's as smart as all anything. So he is now humming the song from John Legend just loud enough that this girl in front of him could hear him. Smart, ne? You can pick up some tips here, those single people. 
So he's, he's standing here and he's humming and humming and humming. And as the train eventually came into the station, the noise amplified the decibels because like absent-mindedly, he would now start singing the song. Even in humming, this girl just uh, tilted her head ever so slightly. She recognized him and he know, ah, you know, he's, uh, he's got something. And as the doors opened and the girl walked in, this guy started belting out John Legend. He went, like all of me loves all of you. And this girl went like, whoa, okay. And he knew that as he was walking in, that she was going to go either left or right. And he was on her shoulder. He was going to turn left or right as well. Love your curves and all your edges. All your perfect imperfections. At this point in time, the girl just collapsed, right? There was a chair right in front of her. She collapsed in the chair. And this little guy plonked himself down right next to her and very confidently said, hi, I'm Stephen. It's like, boom, right? It was like, drop mic, this was the day. He was like famous. And very quickly, he had to figure out where she was getting off the train because now he had like a, like a finite amount of time to get her number, her name or something. He was going to get off at Centurion Station. She was going to get off at Hatfield. Okay, so now he had like Marlborough, Midrand, Centurion. And this whole car was rooting for this guy, right? <laughs> I was at the edge of my seat. People were like listening in and eavesdropping into the conversation. But this girl was so cool and calm and collected. She didn't give him anything, nothing. He was like trying in there and telling him her what job he does. She didn't say anything who he works for. She didn't say anything. And he was just trying his utmost. Marlborough. And then he was like throwing in new stuff, you know, the car that he drives and he, that he doesn't always drive the car train. And then, Midrand. <laughs> Nothing. This, this girl was like, like cool. As we slowed into Centurion Station, this guy had nothing. Absolutely nothing. I thought maybe I should stand up, introduce each other, you know, and say, listen, this is Stephen. Who are you? This guy is trying, you know, he was, he sang John Legend. And I thought that might be a bit creepy, so I didn't do it. <laughs> this poor guy got up at Centurion Station, shoulders bent, walked out, and I just felt for the guy because I also get out in Centurion. I thought maybe I'd pray for him when we get off or something. I don't know. <laughs> and as he was leaving the train, this girl shouted after him. She said, hey, my name is so-and-so. You can find me on Instagram. There was a communal sigh of relief in this train. <laughs> And uh, this guy was shouting and whooping and making noises all the way to the car park. So the moral of the story, and there is a moral to the story, even in church. The moral of the story is that we will chase head first with all our creativity, with all our passion, with all our energy, with all our testosterone. We will chase after certain relationships even though we know that nothing might come of it. Yeah, we chase. And it's like we, we use everything that we've got. And then I wonder why there are relationships 
that we struggle to even take one step into, even though we know that these relationships, if there is just one step closer, could change the atmosphere of the world that we live in. Hey? We will chase after something that might come to nothing, but when we know that this is a crucial conversation, this is a conversation that if I can restore this conversation towards what God wants for this relationship, the world will change around me. But yes, we struggle. And we've got this communal sense of mukhait. As people walked in, I heard, Kila I am tired. I don't want to do this November thing anymore. And maybe the reason why there's some sense of communal tiredness is at this end of this year, relationships that we thought might be in a better state towards the end of this year, the relationship that in January we said, ah, this one I'm going to work on. Now we come to the end of this year and those relationships are still in tatters. And hope leaves our being. So today, the title of the sermon is those Jesus people, a people of reconciliation. A people of reconciliation. So what does reconciliation mean? Restoration or restoring relationships. Simple term. Difficult action. Simple term. Restoring relationships. And maybe as you're sitting here, you're thinking about a relationship that at the beginning of the year, you thought maybe, maybe there's something that God is calling me into just to take a step closer that I can do something about something that is broken. Maybe the Spirit is already taking a, something into your heart that feels very uncomfortable. Maybe you're thinking about a relationship in your home with your husband, with your wife, with your father, with your mother, with friends in the commune, with people that you study with people that you work with, people that you don't even talk to because, you know, they they those other people. Maybe the Spirit is already highlighting something in your heart. So we are going to, through Scripture, nowhere else, we're going to ask these three questions and look for scriptural answers. We've got it up on the screen here. The first question, are we called to restore relationships as a Jesus people? And this is where you say, great question, Borsov. So that is like the, the first question that you need to ask before you go into the next one. Why do we struggle to do it? And then how do we do it? Is it all right? If we go a bit deep. This is not milk stuff. This is like going into where places where it's difficult to go. Are you happy to go there? Ecstatic to go there? Okay, be careful what you wish for. Okay, so now, first question. Are we called to restore relationships? So I don't want to look at this from a moral perspective. So you could ask, is there a moral obligation for us to restore relationships? I'd much rather go into us as Jesus people in replicating and following after being disciples of Christ is it something that is part of our being? Is it part of being a Christian to reconcile relationships? Because this world that we live in is so divided that it has become so divisive that it's become this, this loop that we are in. And the best moral hope in the world would probably not reconcile 
this world that we live in. So I'd much rather go into Scripture because the one person that can enable reconciliation in the relationship that you've got front of mind as we are talking now, the one person is God. So I'd much rather ask the question in the context of Scripture. Colossians 1.19 is the first point that we are going to stop with. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, who is him in Jesus. So God said, I want my fullness, my character, my power, my might, my wisdom, my love. I want all of my fullness to dwell in him. Why? Through him, through Jesus, to reconcile everything to himself. So Jesus' purpose the one that we follow after, his purpose on earth was to reconcile us with his father through his life, death, and resurrection. That was his purpose. Now, this purpose of reconciliation is not something that you take on lightly. That is why he had to be fully man and fully God. When this scripture says it was pleasing to God to have his fullness indwelled Jesus. He needed his fullness because what the scripture says in the first instance is reconciling and restoring relationships is hard. You can't do it by yourself. Jesus was called to reconciliation and he needed the fullness of God in him to be able to do it. Reconciliation here literally is translated as change completely. So what Jesus did was, when he came and he showed us what life is all about, he changed the world completely. If you're sitting here and you don't have Christ in your life, you don't know what it feels like for your past, your present, and your future to be changed completely. All the pain that you've had in the past, for God to come and show you perspective on it. All the difficulty that you're sitting with in the present, for God to come and give you His view on what's going on. And to give you a promise of a future with Him where there's no pain, no illness, no divorce, no joblessness, a life with Him. He came to change your life completely. This is what God, Jesus, has done. 2 Corinthians 5.18 then says, everything is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the word to himself, not counting the trespasses against them. And he has committed the message of reconciliation to whom? To Dr. Deo Hatfield. The word reconciliation here means to restore to divine favor. What Jesus did was he came and he changed our lives completely. And then he gave us a ministry of reconciliation to reach out to people and relationships and to restore those relationships to his divine favor. Our first question is, are we called to restore relationships? The answer? Yes. Okay. We are called to restore it. And then if we have to summarize Colossians and 2 Corinthians, the summary is this. God filled Jesus with himself to die and get resurrected to reconcile the world to God. 
He changed everything completely. Then he called us as his children, as those Jesus people. He called us and empowered us with the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, to step out into a ministry of reconciliation. And what does that mean? To restore our lives and people's lives to his divine favor. Are we called to restore relationships? Yes. That is what a Jesus people do. So now we're going to go into the next two questions. Why then do we struggle so? And how do we do it? And here we are going to dive into the next chapter in Acts. Last week we left off in Acts 10, 9. We're going to go into Acts 10 now. So if you want to get your book, your Bible, your phone, if you don't have anything, you can find a Bible at the back here or look on the screens. So... We are not very loud on the hallelujahs and the amens here, but I hear now and again people say, mm. So if you, have, if you have Acts 10 in your hand, just go, mm. Got it. Hallelujah, okay. Acts 10, verse 1. So it's a long piece that we are going to read. I'm going to hop, skip, and jump through a pieces of it, so please follow carefully. There was a man, verse 1, in Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian Regiment. He was a devout man and feared God along with his whole household. He did many charitable deeds for the Jewish people and always prayed to God. About three in the afternoon, he distinctly saw a vision, an angel of God who came in and said to him, Cornelius. Now, my second name is Cornelius. If somebody says Cornelius, I get this fright of my absolute life. So, in verse 4, he says, starting, st staring at him in awe, he said, What is it, Lord? He recognized the godly intervention. The angel told him, Your prayers and acts of charity have ascended as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa and call for Simon, who is also named Peter. He's lodging with Simon a tanner, whose house is by the sea. No GPS. He needed like good indication. When the angel who spoke with him had gone, he called his people together, explained what was happening, and he sent them after him. Verse 9. The next day, as they were traveling and nearing the city, Peter went up to pray on the roof at about noon. He became hungry and wanted to eat, but while they were preparing something, he fell in a trance. Now, this sounds familiar to parents, right? So you've got teenagers in the house, they get hangry, you have to prepare the food, they go upstairs and fall into trance. So it sounds very familiar. Okay, this is not what's happening here. So Peter then saw heaven open and an object that resembled a long or a large sheet coming down, being lowered by its four corners to the earth. In it were all the four-footed animals and reptiles of the earth and the birds of the sky. And a voice said to him, get up, kill, and eat. No, Lord, Peter said, I have never eaten anything impure, impure and ritually unclean. Again, a second time, the voice said to him, what God has made clean, do not call impure. This happened three times, and suddenly the object was taken up into heaven. Verse 17, while Peter was deeply perplexed about the vision and what it might mean, the men came and called after him. Verse 18, 
They called out asking if Simon, who was named Peter, was lodging there. Verse 19, while Peter was thinking about the vision, the Spirit told him, three men are here looking for you. Get up, go downstairs, and go with him with no doubt at all, because I have sent you. Peter went downstairs and he said, here I am, you're looking for me. What is your reason for calling? And in verse 22, these men describe who Cornelius is, why they were there. Verse 23, Peter then invited them in and gave them lodging. And the next day he got up and set out and went with them and some of his mates along with him. The following day he entered Caesarea. So let's just pause for a moment here. Now the context of Caesarea was it was a core city in the Roman Empire of the day and it was massively divided. The divided nature and the divisive nature of this society between Romans and Jews was so bad that the historians say that in 66 AD, just a few years after this event, all the Jews in that city was put to death. It was a divided and a divisive city. And God calls this man, Peter, through a vision to step into Caesarea. This is not going to Varambat. This is not going to wherever we go and to relax. This is stepping into a divided society. Now Cornelius was expecting them and he had a lot of mates around with him. And when Peter came in in 25, he fell at his feet. Peter said, no, but do you need to stand up? I am not a God in 26. And in 27 and 28, Peter says to them, you know that it's forbidden for, Jew, for a Jewish man to associate with or visit a foreigner. But God has shown me that I must not call any person impure or unclean. This is why I came without any objection when I was sent for. So may I ask, why did you send for me? And Cornelius then in 30 and 32 explains why he sent for him. And right at the end in 33, Cornelius says this. So now we are all Jews and Romans in the presence of God to hear everything you have been commanded by the Lord. Okay, why do we struggle so? Why did Peter struggle? God had to give him a vision. Now, I don't know who of you have experienced this type of vision so closely and so palpably in your lives, but God gives him a vision. Three times he speaks with him. Why did he struggle? So when you read through the commentaries, there's a few possible answers. The one was that Peter was hangry. And they said that, you know, Peter was Peter. He was the guy that chopped off ears and so on. So if this guy didn't have food, that he was, he was going to rebel against any authority that told him anything that he didn't want to do. So that was the, the one possibility. The commentators say, though, that he was, however, now a lot more mature than before. He, uh, he was, in fact, the faith on, of Jesus was the rock on which Jesus was going to build the church. In, uh, in Acts, he was already in Pentecost. He was the guy that preached what Jesus meant in the world, and people already came to the faith. So it couldn't be that. So the other part was that they said maybe he felt that he was tested, thinking of Jesus being led by the Spirit into the, into the wilderness. And um, maybe he thought maybe this is a test. 
But then he realized that it wasn't a test of the devil coming after him. It was Jesus or God speaking to him. So it couldn't be that. So there's something hidden here. There's something hidden that he couldn't figure out with his logical mind. Something that we need to go deep into to be able to figure out not only for Peter but for ourselves as well. Because Acts 10, 17 says, while Peter was deeply perplexed about what the vision had he seen had meant. So he was thinking about it. He was, he was trying to figure it out. Acts 10, 19, while Peter was thinking about the vision, the Spirit told him. So there's something that is below the surface. And maybe the reason why you are struggling in a relationship that you are now by this time trying to push out of your mind as the sermon is progressing Maybe there's something that is lurking below the surface that God wants to come and touch on today in your heart. So now we must listen. God used the dietary requirements of the time to get to below the surface with Peter. Now the dietary requirements were not the dietary fads of keto and intermittent fasting or all these other things that we do if we have like bad habits and you want a quick fix. It's not that. Anybody that's on diet, I'm sorry. I just spoiled everything for you. Sorry. So now, it's not that. It is dietary laws. Now, in Judaism, for Israel, the first time that the dietary laws were given to Israel, the one purpose was to consecrate them as God's people in a heathen society. So these were people that were slaughtering prigs and you know, drinking blood and offering it to God. And, and God said, no, you are my people. I am your God. I want for you to live differently. That's one of the reasons why he gave the dietary laws. So this was not etiquette or taste or something. This had something to do with the social identity of Peter, who he as a Jew was. Now, if you ask me the question, why do we struggle so? It is because many times, if I read the scripture correctly, our social identity, our religion, our tradition, and our culture stops us from doing God's will in our lives. Our social identity, who we are many times, something that we don't even think about, our traditions and our religion and our culture, it is so part of who we are that is so difficult for God to take us into the recesses of who we think we are, pull us out of it and say, no, you are my child, you are my agent of change in this world, I need for you to deal with the things that have become so comfortable to you. Just to put a South African context to it. So I'm finishing a thesis as we speak. So all the students say, sorry. Okay, okay. Aman, okay. So I'm finishing this thesis as we speak. I have to submit by the 27th of December. I promise later I will do it by the 16th. A promise that I, from the stage, will keep. Okay, so I'll, I'll make sure that I do that. Good. In the study, the question that we're asking, the research question is, why does socioeconomic inequality just continue in South Africa when we know how bad it is? 
And the second question is, what would activate somebody to do something about it? So this is the light-hearted research that I'm doing in the middle of the evenings. Okay. So in this research, what was very interesting, what came out in the interviews that we held was the presence of or manifestation of the social unconscious in South Africa. So what the social unconscious is, is that there are, there are things that happen to all of us. And these things in memories and in culture and in artifacts come and they come and live in our beings, whether we know it or not. The social unconscious. Now, Dennis um, Brown, he references four manifestations. Assumptions, disavowals, social defenses, and structural oppression. We've got it up on the screen here. We don't have time to go through all of it. There's a riveting 60-pager that you can read maybe after. But I want to just go into social defenses and structural oppression, things that we don't necessarily know that we feel that might be necessary to unearth. So in social defenses, what came out in the interviews is when I spoke to people about do they realize what the impact of apartheid was on people? They know apartheid was bad, but now apartheid is gone. And now I ask, do you, what do you think the impact of apartheid was on people? This one person would, for example, say, he would say, if somebody says that I benefited from apartheid, then I would deny it. So denial is a defense. Anxiety, now I deny something to keep that anxiety, the thing that I don't want to feel away from me. So social defenses help us deal with the world. It's not a bad thing. But what he then said was, I would deny it. And I said, why? And he said, well, because I grew up poor. And then I said, okay, what school did you attend? And he mentioned one of the schools in the area. And I thought, sure. Maybe you don't see that you did benefit. You had an education that people would throw their shoes after. And you don't see that you benefited. Because if you see that you benefited, it's not going to make you feel guilty. It might just activate you into taking one step closer than you were before. And then when we went to structural oppression, what was just so, so scary for me was that because of structural oppression for such a long period of time, I started speaking with, with young people that said, okay, so... Now I have opportunities to do something with my life and my career, but I'm struggling with dealing with my parents on choosing a career, for example. So they said, my parents grew up in a, an environment that the only jobs that were available to them would be teachers or nurses or policemen. Now, for me to be seen as successful, I have to become like a lawyer or an engineer or a doctor or something. And I sat with this one person and she said to me, but I think God called me as a teacher. Now, in my parents' lives, I mean nothing, because why would you want to be a teacher? Well, maybe because freedom of choice has got something to do with identity. Freedom means identity, but if you're only allowed to make decisions based on risk and information, you might miss your purpose. These things sit on our minds, sit in our beings, and we don't even know it. This is what Scripture wants to come and break open in your heart today. 
Whoever the relationship is or the, or the cultural attributions of a people are, what I'm worried about is that we might be suffering from an asymptomatic illness. We don't know that we are infecting other people. And when we realize that there's something that we've harbored that is making us ill, it is long too late. But God is gracious. Today is the day. Today is the day that he wants to just come and lovingly unearth something that you didn't realize. So how can we restore relationships? Going back to scripture, very practically, step one. It should be on the screen there. Invite people into your space. Proximity. This doesn't come from studies. This comes from scripture. Acts 10.23 says, Peter then invited them and gave them lodging. It was more acceptable for Jews to invite people into their homes than going out to somebody else's house. So the first step that Peter took was he listened to what God was saying, listened to what the Spirit was revealing in his heart. Go downstairs. These people are here for you. Go with them. Listening to the Spirit, he did what? First step, invite people into his space. Step two, enter the space of another. Step one means nothing if you don't go step two. Because in Acts 10, 28 to 29, Peter said, you know that it's forbidden for a Jewish man to associate with or visit a foreigner. But God has shown me something. As I entered your space, I was trying to figure it out, but it took me entering into your space when I realized for the first time that God is telling me, do not call any person impure or unclean. That is why I came. Scales might fall from our eyes. Things might be on earth that we are too, it's too difficult for us to see. If we enter into somebody else's spaces, hear what their stories are, hear how they think about life. That's why I love our community group. It's where people of different walks of life come together and I can listen to their stories. I can hear what they're saying. I can think about my assumptions and say, okay, so wow, maybe this assumption is just wrong. I can share my life, I can share my story, I can share my struggles in having other people understand me. Step three, confront your prejudice. Now prejudice, we don't wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to be prejudiced. Okay, so we don't say that. That's not a real word for the young people. Okay, prejudiced. We don't wake up that way. We start with preference. Preference that's based on culture and tradition and religion. And then that preference we mix a bit over time with ego and pride. And then it becomes a prejudice. We don't start off not liking people or being prejudiced. It's a journey that if we are not awake to it, we fall into and we become part of divisiveness. And what was so amazing here is, God showed me, said Peter, that I should not call any person impure or unclean. Literally, this is translated, I should not call any person common. So God comes lovingly with a vision three times, breaking through what Peter didn't want to see or couldn't see. He breaks through it and he says, 
I want to break through the common distinctions that divide people. I want to break through it. Somebody once wrote this sentence, in our journey of sanctification, becoming more and more like Christ, our prejudices are often the last to be touched. This is a deep journey into our hearts. Step four, be realistic. Laura Davis writes the following. She says, there are four types of reconciliation. Deep mutual healing, shifting your expectation, agreeing to disagree, or inner resolution. Being realistic means that there are relationships that both parties just see the light and there's deep mutual healing. But if the relationship that you have in your mind from the beginning and that you then pushed away and that the Spirit is bringing back into your mind at this point in time, maybe those, that relationship is one where there can only be a shift if you shift your expectation of that relationship. The other person might not. But if you shift your expectation of that relationship, it might open up that relationship ever so slightly for just a next step. Then there's agreeing to disagree, that we just have, and I've got some of those relationships at work, we just disagree on what happened in the past. You said, she said, I said, I go to the notes, I go to the recordings, we interpret it differently. And maybe reconciliation in this type of relationship looks like agreeing to disagree and finding something else to have as a common denominator and building the relationship from the middle as opposed to from the polar opposites. And then the last one, I've got a few in my life, where the person passed away before there was a resolution. And the sad part here is that we are then called to inner resolution, inner restoration, where the best that we can do is to grieve what was lost. I don't know where in these you are. I don't know what the relationship is that God is calling you to restore to His divine favor. But I know that each and every one of us has a few. And I'm going to pray for us as we close. And then we are going to allow for you to spend God time with God in prayer. Asking Him, Lord, where do you want to take me? Where do you want to take me in what I don't want to see or cannot see so that I can take one step closer in a relationship that would change the atmosphere of my life? And then we're going to ask you, to just practice stepping out of this comfort zone and share it, whatever relationship is coming up with you. If it's too sensitive, please don't share it. But if you're comfortable to share something that the Spirit is unearthing in your life, to share it with somebody that's sitting around you. So if you are uncomfortable with the person sitting around you, get up now and go and sit elsewhere. That's a joke. You can't do that. That would be like bad stuff, eh? Younger, doula. Because then what we're going to do is Wednesday in community groups, we are going to check in with each other 
and asking whether God, through His Spirit, has been spending time with us to go underneath the surface. Then we're going to agree some next steps. What is the one step that I can take with this person, with this culture group, or whatever is in your mind at the moment? And then we're going to check in later. We staggered it out over a week because what was built up in a lifetime doesn't change like on a Sunday. There might be one light that has been shone on something that God wants to just release you from. But I'm trusting the Spirit that He will journey with you now and through the week. I'm going to pray. We're going to get some music from the background there. We're going to spend time first with ourselves and then sharing with each other if you're comfortable to do so. Is that all right? I don't see absolutely panic-stricken faces here. So, yeah? At least say, mm. Okay. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the loving way that you just come around us and that you want to shape our lives into Jesus' people that are a people of reconciliation, restoring relationships. The problem with this one, Lord, is that a lifetime of thinking differently it's so difficult to get through. Holy Spirit, I just want to pray that you will minister to our hearts in this loving way, in the same loving way as you did with Peter. You didn't bash down his door. You didn't strike him down. You, you taught him. Holy Spirit, you know what my heart needs right now. Please minister to me in your loving way. And the people of God said, Amen.